Way. I'm Simon Jackman. Good morning or good evening, as the case may be. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Sydney, and I'm the chief executive officer of the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. And as is customary for public events in Australia, um, I begin by acknowledging that the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, who form part of the Eora Nation the collection of First Peoples uh, in the Sydney Basin, where, where I am today. Um, but more importantly, we're joined today by Dr. Jonathan Holloway, who is President-Designate of Rutgers University, the State University of New Jersey. He begins his term as President um, on July 1. And, and Jonathan, um, a leading historian of the African-American experience in the United States. And he'll be joined in conversation in just a few minutes by Charlie Dell, a uh, non-resident fellow here at the United States Study Center. And, and Jonathan and Charlie's paths are uh, connected at Yale University, where Charlie uh, got his undergraduate degree and his PhD. And, and that's where uh, Jonathan also received his PhD in history. Look, today for the United States Study Center, this webinar today, is, is incredibly significant. Um, the developments of the last couple of weeks in the United States, for us as a study center, have, have underscored a critical component um, of our mission. And, and that is to explain the United States, to educate Australians about the United States. And one thing that we've found in the last couple of weeks is this shock um, among Australians, um, a rediscovery for many about the way racial inequality has been such a central part of the American story. From the founding, through debates over the admission of slave or free states to the Union and Civil War, through Reconstruction and Jim Crow, the Great Migration, desegregation, up through the passage of civil rights legislations in the 60s, and the, and the reorientation of American politics that followed time and time and time again, the United States is torn by what we might call its great unfinished business, that America's guarantees of liberty and justice be delivered without regard to race or ethnicity. Um, it is so easy for those of us that have so much invested in Australia's re relationship with the United States to not see that if you don't grow up in the United States. If, if uh, the United States is a place you see on television or read about or visit from time to time, Without that deep immersion in American history, in American politics, it's easy, I think, for outsiders, uh, even those who take a keen interest in many other elements of the United States, to, to not quite sufficiently understand just the centrality of race in the American story, and, in, and as we see in the last couple of weeks, the way it is so powerful in contemporary American politics and society. So Charlie and I were talking about this the other night and we thought we need to do a webinar like the one we're going to do today. And, and Charlie reached out to his, um, his old friend, Jonathan. And I'm so pleased that a historian of Jonathan's stature and given the role he's about to take on must be a little bit busy getting his head around the big job awaiting him in, in just a couple of weeks. Um, but for that reason, I'm especially delighted uh, that Jonathan's been able to join us. And Charlie, 
I'm going to hand moderating duties over to you now. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us from all the way from Rutgers. And um, I, I assume you're in New Brunswick. Um, um, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and over to you, Charlie, who's not quite so far away. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Well, thank, thanks, Simon. And uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Holloway. Uh, not yet in um, New Jersey and still in Illinois. Uh, given the events of the last several weeks, from the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis policeman to the subsequent nationwide, indeed even worldwide, protests over police brutality and systemic racism, it's hard to think of a more timely, a more important, and frankly, a more challenging conversation uh, than that on race in America. Uh, this is a conversation, though, that cannot focus only on what's happening today but one that demands understanding the role that race has played throughout American history, as Simon just sketched, and how America arrived at this particularly fraught moment in its history. And for that conversation, it's hard to think of anyone better suited to address the history behind today's headlines than our guest, Dr. Jonathan Holloway. Uh, Dr. Holloway is president-designate of Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Most recently, he served as provost of Northwestern University and before moving to Northwestern, he was Dean of Yale from 2014 to 2017. He's also professor of history and African-American studies. Dr. Holloway received a bachelor's degree with honors in American studies from Stanford University and a PhD in history from Yale University. Dr. Holloway's scholarship focuses on post-emancipation social and cultural American history. His, he is the author of Confronting the Veil and Jim Crow Wisdom, Memory and Identity in Black America Since 1940. He edited Ralph Bunch's A Brief and Tentative Analysis of Negro Leadership and co-edited Black Scholars on the Line, Race, Social Science, and American Thought in the 20th Century. Most recently, he's just finished a short, a short survey called The Cause of Freedom, A Concise History of the African-American Past. He's also an old friend and a mentor, and I'm extremely honored that he's taken the time to join the U.S. Study Center today for a conversation on this extremely important topic. Here's the plan. Dr. Holloway will make some initial remarks. We'll talk a bit about his new book, which covers all of Amer African-American history, starting in 1619 and running through the present. Uh, don't worry, that won't be too long of a conversation. And then we'll talk a bit about what's happening today. And I'd like to open it up to all of your questions. Uh, one request to everyone who's listening right now. I'll do my best to get through as many of your questions as possible. Uh, and if you would like to submit a question, uh, do it in the question um, in the Q&A box. But please, uh, because there are several hundred, if not more than a thousand of you listening, please limit your questions to questions, not comments, so I can do my best to sort through them all. Uh, Dr. Holloway, over to you. Thank you, Charlie. And uh, thanks all of you for signing up. This is um, quite an interesting moment for me for all the reasons Charlie uh, announced. This is also on a very personal level uh, an important moment. I have been uh, announced as Rutgers president in late January, but by protocol have been intentionally not making statements uh, to respect the idea of one president at a time. Uh, this actually is my very first time speaking publicly, partly is because of my old friendship with Charlie, but also uh, given the events that are happening uh, around the world with the gestation moments being these, this one tragedy after another in the United States, and given the areas of expertise that I, I happen to have, 
this seemed like an opportunity that I, I it would be that I needed to say something. And uh, this is not a grand statement per se, but but as as Charlie suggested, um, I want to open up my comments here, uh, relying on my expertise and talking about history as a way to help us move forward into a conversation that will probably be much more contemporary when we get to the Q&A. So um, I study the post-emancipation United States from the, the mid 19th century to the present. But in my large lecture class on that same topic, I always began much earlier. And I began uh, in with, with a headstone rubbing um, and told a story of this headstone from a Concord, Massachusetts cemetery. And, and I'll fill in the gaps. This is about a five to seven minute story as I, as, as I unspool it here. I wanna begin with the actual text itself. So just bear with me, I'll repeat certain points um, uh, uh, to help make it clear. So the headstone reads as follows. God wills us free, man wills us slave. I will, as God wills, God's will be done. It's the opening lines, I'll say it one more time. God wills us free, man wills us slave. I will, as God wills, God's will be done. And the rest of the headstone reads as follows. And I'll just read it once and then I'll tell you the story. Here lies the body of John Jack, a native of Africa who died March 1773, aged about 60 years. Though born in the land of slavery, he was born free. Though he lived in the land of liberty, he lived a slave till by his honest though stolen labors, he acquired the source of slavery, which gave him his final emancipation and set him on a footing with kings. Though a slave to vice, he practiced those virtues without which kings are but slaves. Beautifully poetic and, and there's a lot of things going on. I don't wanna unpack it for you and explain to you why I start my post-emancipation course with this particular document from 80 years earlier. So this is a story about John Jack, not his birth name, an African who was born in somewhere in Africa, we don't know, a continent with a very long history of slavery, still extant today. Somehow he is captured and he's brought over to, the, to colonial New England, uh, to a land that is pushing and pulling, trying to articulate um, its need for liberty. And, and he's there as a slave. And a lot of people don't know that there were slaves in colonial New England. There are a lot of slaves in colonial New England. In any event, he learns a skill he had, as the language would have been at the day, a kind master who taught him a skill. He was a, a cobbler, essentially. And he, the master allowed him to keep a little bit of money from each shoe he cobbled. Over time, he bought himself. So through his honest, though stolen labors, he acquired the source of freedom. Uh, he bought himself, and he actually bought a little bit of land and had a subsistence farm in Concord, Massachusetts. He then went to the citizens of Concord and said, I want to be declare my, I, I want to um, declare my citizenship status. And he checked off the boxes. He was male and he owned property. By all practices in Concord, he should be considered a citizen. But the citizens of Concord denied him that opportunity, saying that because he had once been in bondage, he could not be a citizen in Concord. Uh, John Jack um, uh, ends up uh, becoming something of, something of an alcoholic, and he knows that he's dying, and he hires somebody to put his affairs in order. 
and um, uh, uh, and that's the same person who wrote this epitaph and paid for the headstone. And the person that he hired to do this was a lawyer named Daniel Bliss, who had its own interesting side history uh, that I want some of the time to get into. The reason this is important is John Jack died in uh, 1773. We are on the verge of the start of um, the Revolutionary War in what becomes the United States. Uh, John Jack was living amongst Concordians, white conquered um, males who were complaining to King George, the crown and uh, the, the, the king in England, using the language that they were being treated like slaves and that they wanted their freedom. But somehow they ignored the people that they literally owned. They ignored the slaves in their midst. And then when one became free, the thing that they were clamoring for, they turned that person back as well. So they were blind to their own ironies or hypocrisies. So as the, the colonial New England is moving towards the Declaration of, of Independence, and this is happening in Concord, Massachusetts, where this, the Revolutionary War begins, John Jack dies. And the person he hired to put his affairs in order was a sympathizer to the British crown. And that part is really, that that's sort of the final little twist of the screw that John Jack, born in another continent, brought to a land of freedom where he could only live as a slave. And then he acquired his freedom, but was never allowed to be a citizen, being denied access by the people who themselves claimed that they were slaves, although they weren't. Hire somebody who's sympathetic to the British crown, the very force that was enslaving the Concordians to put his affairs in order. And you know, I'm going pretty quickly, there's a lot of layers there, but, but I start at this point with my students on post-emancipation African-American history to say that if you want to understand the ways in which this country has valued this country, the United States has valued liberty, has talked about freedom, and that is at the, the beating heart of what gives essence and meaning to the United States. If you wanna understand that, you have to understand the commitment to slavery. You have to understand the commitment to denying that opportunity to be fully free or to be fully recognized as a citizen, that, that these two things are intertwined. And there's an amazing book by the late historian Edmund Morgan that speaks to American slavery, American freedom, that speaks to this phenomenon, this, in this case in colonial Virginia. But you have to understand that freedom derives much of its meaning from the denial of it. That I know what it's like to be free for me because there are slaves around the corner and I don't want to be like them. So you start at this point. If this is how this, if this is the ideological foundation of what becomes the United States, then you can start drawing connections uh, that, that sadly cross generations, that cross centuries. And Simon gave this really beautiful. I mean, that's quite impressive. I spent 90 seconds giving the history of race in the United States and you did a really good job. But there are connect, there's connective filaments or connective tissues from this headstone in a conquered cemetery to understanding how we get to today. And the fact that those connections are so strong and, and clear, at least to me at least, is rather heartbreaking. So I, and, and I could give many other examples, but I wanna start at this, like this, this Ur text, this very early moment of the articulation of what it's going to mean to be a free person in a land that has slaves uh, and telescope that out to 
What does it mean to be a free person in the age of the Civil War or an enslaved person? What does it mean after the Civil War to now all of a sudden be free but be denied access to citizenship? What does that mean as you get into um, the modern civil rights movement where people, when the civil rights movement was, you look at King's fiery radical speeches and what is he asking for? For the constitution to be upheld. That's it. He's calling for really a rather conservative thing. Let's just go back to the founding documents, please, and adhere to them. We want to be citizens. This has been, I argue in, in the book that'll be out next year, this is at the foundation of understanding the African-American experience. There is a constant claim, a desire to be treated, well, as a human being, certainly, to have your humanity recognized, but to be a citizen. And the fact that we are still fighting that does speak in really shameful ways about a larger commitment, I think often unconscious, but a larger commitment to preserve an order in which people are still not yet fully citizens. So I'll start there, well, I'll stop there, Charlie. I've, I've laid out a few different ideas and then, and then we can, um, I'll let you take the lead. Back to you. Uh, thanks, uh, that's, uh, that gives us a lot uh, to do there. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough that I got to take a look at um, this new book that you're talking about where you're scoping all of African-American history, 400 plus years. Um, and one of the things that I took away from reading the book, much like the comments you've just made, uh, Jonathan, uh, is that African-American history is both integral to American history. It sits right at its core, but it's also, uh, as you write, America's core paradox. Uh, you were just talking about that paradox, that contradiction. Um, I, I'm curious if you can reflect a little bit more about what that has meant for American history and what that contradiction, that paradox has done to the trajectory of American history. Uh, I know that's a bit of a broad question, but I thought uh, we'd, we'd give you uh, room to run on this one. No, it's actually an excellent question. And, and uh, we'll have to, you and I will have to fight our historians' impulses to like talk about the history of history too much. But, but I mean, this is an invitation to do so very quickly. So, and, and I'm speaking in, in, in uh, broad strokes here. Um, so if you look at the history of, of my discipline, African-American studies, I'm a historian who works in African-American studies. That discipline didn't exist until the late 1960s. Uh, and it grew out of protest and it grew out of a sense of people saying our experiences are not anywhere to be found in the textbooks. Our experiences are not anywhere to be found in the classrooms. But we've lived and we have really important histories. And so you see coming out of the modern civil rights movement in the 60s, a lot of new areas of inquiry being created, uh, a, a, a new or a um, a level of curiosity and research being done in the African-American experience, women's experience, what would turn into LGBTQ history, for example, uh, Asian-American history, um, Latin American, um, I'm sorry, um, uh, Mexican-American, Chicano history, Latinx studies now. Um, these are born out of civic unrest in the, in the 1960s. So when we think about the way historians have written about the past, you need to understand that the 60s, early 70s is a watershed moment in the narrative being changed to what was then called the new social history. We're gonna look at the history of the people who are presumed to not have a history. So 
If we go on the other side of that moment into as, er as late as the mid 60s, but if you go back across the 20th century, you have histories being written that, um, that are written in a way that would, if you, if you read that history, nothing else, you would only be left to conclude um, that immigrants didn't do a whole bunch in this country, at least as immigrants. Once they were here, it's a different story. That people working in mines or working on shop floors didn't really do much in this country. Um, that women definitely didn't do much of anything in this country and on down the line. So the result of that is you get a certain narrative that says only a certain type of person matters, only a certain type of, of, of work within that population matters. So this is, this history, I want to be clear, also writes out um, poor white Americans. I mean, it wipes them out entirely out of the narrative well. So the history that my parents and your parents was raised on was a history of filled with incredible absences uh, that was in the in the in the lazy formulation great white men of history, which um, you know is the history written by the lions, not by the lambs in this case. Um, so um, what that means is that you get ideological constructions that can have real world policy implications because you don't have to worry about the impact on the labor union or the impact on the domestic sphere or the impact on forced labor, because it's just not part of the equation. Like if you're, if you're taught in that world where you're only hearing about, um, and these are important things, you know, US presidential politics and military um, histories, these are important, we need to know these too. But if you're only raised in that, you're not raised in a history of like, let's just be simplistic about it. If you're raised a bit with military history of the great battles, no one's talking to you about how the gun was made. No one's talking to you about how um, the, the base where all these people were trained was being supplied by a whole bunch of people working around the base. You only, you're only getting the end result of a history and then sort of a particular version of it. So this, the history we have now is much more robust, much more complicated, much more fragmented, which I know is a lament for an older generation. Like things were clearer then. I'm like, well, yeah, I bet they were. But like my ancestors weren't in that history, but they lived. So I, 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 I'll accept the complexity, please. You know, um, as, as you're talking about this, uh, I note that uh, a lot of people are starting to type in comments. I'm trying not to look at them too much because we have so much to discuss, but they're really good questions already. And uh, okay. the, the point of history that's been screened out, uh, one of the participants or attendees uh, Gary Decker just typed in, you know, that he asked his 97 year old mother, uh, did she know about Tulsa? And she said, not until last week. Uh, he asked, this is just a general comment. This is not a question. Mm -hmm. How is mm -hmm. it possible that she didn't know about it until last week? And I think you've just addressed this to a certain degree. Now, I, I, one logistical matter, and then uh, another question for you. Um, uh, someone had asked, what's the availability to watch this again? I just want to note for everyone who's now tuning in uh, that the recording, the audio recording of this should be up later today on the U.S. Study Center website. And the, uh, the video, if, if you're dying to watch us do this in person again, should be up uh, shortly, a little bit later in the week. Um, but Charlie, I do can I interrupt you? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So just going back to the, the, the question you pointed to, the Tulsa thing, it actually brings up a really important point. Um, there are so many instances where students learning this history 
will say, well, if I was around at that time, I would have done X, Y, or Z. And I would have been engaged in like, well, maybe you would have. But you need to understand like with civil rights movement history is really a small number of people who were incredibly passionate, maybe crazed in some way, certainly reckless at times, who decided to make the, the, the pave the way forward. And so many of us have benefited from it. And there's one very quick story. It's a great author named Diane McWhorter who wrote a book called Carry Me Home. Uh, and white woman talking about her experiences growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, during the middle of these incredibly famous cataclysmic moments in the movement. And she was around 15 at the time, something like that. And there's this one moment in the book that I never, that, that stuck with me, is that she lived around a hill, let's say. I don't remember the finer details, but she did not live near downtown Birmingham, but she lived in Birmingham proper. And she did not know for the longest time that any of this stuff was happening. And she lived a mile, two miles away. And it's just a reminder that we can be very comfortable in our respective little comfortable spaces or whatever our space is, comfortable or not, and not know that something life-altering is happening around the corner. Now, a lot of that's collapsed because of social media. And that's why one of the reasons we're in this particular moment, because everybody's a reporter now, everybody's a documentarian. And so what evidence looks like has changed. But that's a very new phenomenon, and we need to keep that in mind when we think about the past. Uh, well, on the past, actually, I do want to come back to this sweeping survey because as a historian, you've written multiple subject books on this subject, but I imagine that this most recent project where you're trying to scan 400 years in just 141 pages was something quite different. Uh, now, I'm actually curious when you look over the long sweep, and we're not talking about 1773, which is where you started your comments today, but going all the way back to 1619. Uh, I'm actually curious in trying to sweep in, uh, are there patterns? themes jumped out at you throughout on this uh, big sweep that you just undertook? Um, we had some audio problems there, but I think I got the core of your question. Um, the, the, there are key themes, and I've, I've already mentioned a couple of them, that African-Americans wanted to be recognized. I mean, the term African-American doesn't actually make sense going back to 1619 or beyond, um, but we'll use it for now. They wanted their humanity recognized. They wanted citizenship recognized when that actually made sense. Um, and uh, if you look at the sweep of American history, there's a moment when the, the notion of who was civilized or not really was important. They wanted to be recognized as being fully civilized as well. Um, so if you, um, if you look across this history, you see these things continuing coming up. And it is, it is at its core, whether it's about being a citizen, of being civilized, um, being human, there is a, a, a very fundamental desire to be acknowledged. And that seems way too simple, but I am certain that so many of the things that we're hearing and seeing today is because individuals and systems have refused to acknowledge people in, in, their, in their full complexity as human beings, as people can contribute to society, et cetera. So acknowledgement for me is where we need, is where so many things start. Um, let me take it forward a little bit, uh, Dr. Hallway, that um, 
you and I got to know each other about 15 years ago uh, when I had just started in grad school and you were serving as the head of Yale's Calhoun College. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, John C. Calhoun was a 19th century U.S. Senator, uh, Secretary of uh, War. They didn't have Secretaries of Defense back in war. He was Secretary of possibly uh, most vile racist in all American political history. Uh, now, it shouldn't surprise anyone uh, that for someone who defended slavery as a positive good for the country, that there was significant controversy around the name of that college. Uh, as head of that college, uh, as a scholar of African American history, you have a particularly unique vantage point. Uh, and I'd like to not talk about that controversy so much, but maybe you can help us think about how racism, slavery, and memory intersect, particularly when we look around the world about all the calls for renaming places, tearing down statues, banning the Confederate flag. How do you think we should look at the question of monuments, memorials, and names? Uh, should they be torn down and renamed? Uh, should they be left up as flaws uh, as monuments to America's flawed history? How do you approach that question? Thanks for the very easy question, Charlie. I appreciate that. Oh, this, this is a <clears throat> excuse me, very complicated issue. And I've evolved quite a bit on this issue. You know, and look, in my lifetime, growing up in the Upper South, I would see a Robert E. Lee Avenue. You just see it everywhere. And I didn't think twice about it because as the names on things, it was not a commentary on who I was. It was just it's just the way it was. Now, I'm not saying that's satisfactory, but that's just the honest, you know, you're going about my business. I'm not worried about who that statue is for or something like that. Um, anyway, I'm, then I am the, the head of Calhoun College. And from the very beginning, I was asked by people, don't you want to advocate for the name change? And I actually said no for a very particular reason. The reason was I didn't think that Yale, a place I love, still loved then and still love, had ever had the honest reckoning about what this name, why they chose this name in the first place. So for me, the historian, the professional historian says, I don't want to change names. I want to have honest conversations about a bad choice that was made. I want to have an honest conversation about who this person was that's being memorialized in a certain way. Over time, I came to, I, I came to see this in a slightly different way is that Okay, Jonathan or Charlie, you, we are both professional historians. Most people aren't. And so they are trying to navigate things that give meaning to their lives in a way that you and I can be rather antiseptic about and think about, well, if we just put a marker here and, and build a curriculum around that, people will come and learn about it. That's presuming a lot about how much people really want to come and learn about something. And so for me, um, I, I, will, I still cringe when I see monuments toppled. That's just my first instinct. Um, my first instinct is still to teach. But the fact is, there are so many commitments to not know, so many institutional commitments to not engage with the dirty parts of their past, um, that if this is what it's going to take to say we need to find a new way forward, perhaps that's the way to do it. And I want to hedge because I'm not at all convinced every um, statue has to come down because I, I, we need to be humble as well because something that we look at in 2020 that people did in 1950s being irrational 
that we all know better now. We need to be recognized that in 20 years, people are gonna look at us and think, what the heck were they thinking? So I don't know that there's a final single approach to this, but I do know that it is deeply important that there's an honest engagement in all of these things. Like the Confederate flag you just mentioned, there has been dishonesty wrapped up in that flag as long as I've ever known it to be flying. That it was, you know, some people who liked the flag were said it's about Southern heritage. I'm like, and this is a proud marker of our past. One, I don't get it because you lost. So like, why do you want to fly the flag? You lost, is that what you want to be reminded of? But also the flag, the Confederate battle flag was nowhere to be seen in the US South until the 1950s. It was a response to the civil rights movement. And so people, I, I want to believe will uh, naively just don't know their history, that this battle flag that they're admiring for its great connection to Southern heritage, it was, it was very consciously put back up to fly in the face of civil rights activism. And so there's nothing to me genteel about the battle flag at all. It is about an effort to thumb its nose at a history of people trying to um, uh, declare their citizenship. So, so I think you have to take local factors into, into play when you're rendering a judgment. I'm not in the position to render judgments on a global scale about the taking down of statues or renaming cities. Um, but I do think we have to be honest about this wherever these things are happened, happening. Uh, really, uh, I appreciate the call to humility as we approach uh, painful historical moments, but also where we're at now. And I'd like to flip that a little bit uh, and ask you, uh, as a historian, uh, uh, to think about the extraordinary events in the United States over the past couple weeks surrounding the killing of George Floyd and the protests that have swept the nation. Uh, and when you think back over the long sweep of oppression, protest, activism, and change in American history, how does this particular moment track? Uh, does it, is this moment different? And another way of saying this with a historical lens on is, what does it actually take uh, when you look at history to lead to meaningful change? Yeah, yeah. Well, what I, it, this moment does feel different. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. Um, you know, the historian in me knows better than to say something along the following lines, which was, boy, I wish I were around in the 1960s where things were really happening. Well, things have been happening and they can be quite awful and painful and, um, and dangerous and mortal. Um, so, um, you know, there, there's nothing romantic about this moment at all. Um, it, it's very hopeful in many ways for people. But let's not talk about, it. I mean, you're not saying this, I'm just saying, let's not think about it in a romantic way. This is hard, this is really hard. Um, why are we here? We're here, um, one can theorize lots of different aspects, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement hit a tipping point, it's a generational change at social media. Um, no, we're here because of a pandemic. We're here because uh, all of these other things have contributed to it, but now you have in the United States, you know, people who've been, who've been bottled up for months and months, irritated on all kinds of matters, um, and stuck in these visual loops where they're just getting this, these horrible images over and over again. There's no hiding from these things. And, and then you add to all that um, the fact that in the US, at least people 
there's such high unemployment right now, a lot of people are either out of work or they're working from homes. So they can actually go out on the streets if they want to. You add all this stuff up together and then you find yourself in this moment. Now, the, now over the last, oh gosh, 15 or 20 years, we've had different spasms of whether it's people protesting um, um, international monetary fund or something like that, where people hit the streets uh, to rise up. And, and we see more of, this in, more of this in this age of populism. But it seems like the confluence of so many different things and then absolutely um, fueled, ignited by this pandemic that has us where we are right now. Now, what do we do with it? You know, this is, this is the big question that, that needs to be answered. And I am a, enough of a traditionalist that I say uh, that I have enough faith in the possibilities of the US system that what we do with it is we, people get organized and they organize at a local level, they get involved in local politics, they register and they actually vote. In the US, it's not mandatory. Um, uh, but my goodness, if people, some decide that they are so frustrated at the system, they're gonna check out and not vote at all, then they will have, I will be offended by their arrogance, to be honest. Um, I think you're obliged to exercise your civic duty, whatever your politics are, show up and actually vote and then let's have a conversation. Um, I could go on in the soapbox, Charles. I think I left your question behind somewhere in the distance. So maybe you can bring me back. No, I think it's just fine where you left it. Um, I okay. have one more question uh, that I'd like to put to you though, uh, before we turn it over uh, to everyone's questions and there are a ton coming in right now. Um, and one of the things that's been so extraordinary over the past two weeks is that the events in America have led to worldwide mass protests and rally. You've seen them here in Sydney, uh, in London, in Berlin. Uh, I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, and I'm curious to hear your thinking on what exactly this speaks to. Uh, what is America's message to the world right here? And what's the world's message back to America at this particular moment? America's message to the world. Um, Oof. Uh, <laughs> it's not a pretty message right now from my particular standpoint. Uh, it's a message that's saying we have a problem when it comes to how we treat our own citizens. Uh, and that problem disproportionately, at least visually, runs along racial lines. Now, I think it also runs along class lines and language lines and things like that. But it's really being articulated in a very pointed way, um, in, a, in a way that says, these people may be citizens, but there's nothing that we are bound to respect about their, their right to sleep in their own bed, the right to go jogging in a neighborhood. Um, this is the message that we have. And, and really, from a foreign policy standpoint, how do we navigate to the point where we can say, as we've said in the past, that we are a beacon about a democratic experiment? I mean, if this is what the experiment looks like, who wants to listen to us? frankly, and I find that horrifying. I find that dispiriting. Um, now, in terms of the way that this is connected to things going around the world, we're in a moment of what I'll call weirdly global populism, that you know, populist governments are rising up all over the world, have been rising up for the last handful of years, certainly. Um, very conservative in terms of um, you know, racial or ethnic uh, parties that seem to be organized around hate, although they don't phrase themselves in that way are becoming much more popular. And what we're seeing everywhere is that while there might be a protest in Sydney, 
that is sparked by um, a, a memorial for George Floyd, it's really about that and the way Australians treat their indigenous populations, historically speaking. And that's a, you know, that's a horrible track record too. Or if you're talking about the, the protests that happened um, in Germany, that they would be talking about George Floyd, but they're also talking about how they treat immigrant workers in that country, guest workers and such. So all these marches have very local flavors to them. And what you're seeing is that there is a, a deep, I'll use the word anxiety globally about survival, about people's rights being respected just enough that they can put a roof over their head, you know, um, uh, provide for their families, have a job with reasonable securities to it, that a lot of this has been, been placed under threat. And that's a huge question as to why, why now, that goes beyond my level of expertise, but we're seeing this, this um, global articulation of, of anxiety, of dislocation, of finding a mouthpiece. And, and I'm not a big fan of social media at all, to be honest, but in this way, it is doing transformative work because it's connecting people in this way that they can share their grievances about not being acknowledged. And, uh, and now governments and corporations and universities are paying the price for not acknowledging the people in their midst. Thanks very much. Um, what I'd like to do now is turn it over to all of the attendees, uh, not all of them because with nearly a thousand of you, I don't know how that would exactly work on Zoom. Uh, but uh, while Dr. Holloway has been talking, I've been kind of working through as many of the questions as I could to try to group them uh, so that we can get as many of you uh, getting your questions in as possible. So. Uh, with apologies for doing a little violence to the questions, let me throw out a, a group, a set of questions to you. Uh, the first one, and this comes from, oh, five or six different people. Uh, and you spoke about this a little bit, about are things different this time around? Um, but I particularly want to zero in on the way that it was phrased by uh, both Jean uh, Sinius. My apologies, Jean, if I screwed up your last name. Uh, or Maurice Elias, both from Rutgers. Uh, Jean asked, uh, how do you feel about the current protests compared to the ones that came before in American history? And very much linked to your final point, uh, Dr. Holloway, uh, about don't be a lazy citizen. Uh, I'm just emphasizing that point again. Uh, Maurice Elias asked, what will keep the murder of George Floyd from becoming another missed inflection point? Yeah, that, that second question is, is quite powerful because it does speak to so many people. I mean, what, what is it about George Floyd, not to do any disrespect to his life or his memory, but what is it about George Floyd that is now different? What is it about? I mean, it is a building of an accumulation of horrors, frankly. Cataloged through social media, and this is where I think it's being a transformative positive force, um, uh, so I, I think what social media has done well, it provides no hiding place for these kind of transgressive moments of violence. And so I, I, I actually think that, put it this way, it is hard for me to imagine that anybody can put George Floyd this moment back in a bottle. I mean, the fact that we are in our second week of protests and they keep growing and modulating and shifting 
tells me that we things have changed. Now, um, oh, and, and then that we're seeing these things I could not have imagined just two weeks ago. I mean, think about that amount of time. Two weeks ago, I could not have imagined municipalities saying, we are gonna fundamentally restructure our police force or that cities are saying we're banning certain um, aggressive forms of policing that we've been relying on um, uh, for quite a long time. These things take months and years of back and forth with you know, unions and votes, and these are being done like that. So we're already seeing really powerful and positive change. Um, now, the first part of the question, uh, oh, how does this moment compare to other movements, I think is what the question was. Um, you know, I'm not trying to be cute here. Historians are not great at judging something in the moment to assess it across different, different time periods. But this does sort of feel quite different. Um, the scales feel very different. Uh, um, you know, most of the things that we talk about the modern civil rights movement, you know, really signature moments in Selma, the march from Selma to Montgomery, these were not marches of hundreds of thousands of people. And it was one march in one place. It wasn't I mean, if you look at a New York Times, a, a point map of where protests have happened around the country, all around the United States, everywhere, everywhere. Um, so nothing like this has happened before in this country. And, and that's excluding what's happening all around the globe. So it does feel different. Um, what does feel also, what also feels different right now, and I'm, I'm being simplistic here, but for effect, is that who is actually doing the protesting literally looks different that now in the modern civil rights movement, there are always white allies marching along with King and other people. It was not just black folks in a march, lots of white allies, and they were key to the movement. But you're seeing crowds that are majority white. You're seeing protests, sometimes very small, but protests happening in virtually all white spaces. Um, there's this very moving montage that I saw, I can't remember where, of protests of like one, three, 10 people happening in places where there are basically no black or brown people anywhere. Someone just holding up a sign saying black lives matter and probably catching a bunch of heck for doing so. But everywhere, that is different. That is absolutely different. And for those reasons, I think this will have staying power. Now where it takes us, I don't, I, I can't say for sure, but this is not being put back in a bottle. Um, I'd like to take it over. Uh, we had a lot of questions that came in on uh, reparations. Uh, so there are many different angles, of course, to this question, but let me throw three your way because I thought they were really insightful questions. Uh, Kenesha Butler asked, what are your thoughts on some form of reparations for descendants of those who basically built this country, uh, this country not being Australia, but America? Um, mm -hmm. John uh, Fried asked, do you think that reparations would absolve America's original sin of slavery? And then Marcina uh, Papantonio, and apologies for uh, pronunciations, asked, uh, are reparations feasible uh, within the US? I guess that means from both a uh, political and a fiscal perspective. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the one thing I wanna say first for those people to say reparations, uh, this is an outlandish request, it's never been done before. The first people to ever, I mean, reparations have happened in the US before. The first people to receive them were white slave owners um, who were getting reparations for the property that they had lost. So let's just, let's just get away from reparations have never been done before. There's a history here, okay? 
Now, in terms of reparations for the African-American enslavement, exquisitely complicated because of record keeping, although we keep, historians, it's amazing, we keep finding new archives in different places. Um, and slave owners were very good about keeping track of their property. But once the moment of emancipation came uh, and that system broke down, record keeping become a, a much more tenuous affair. So the idea of actually being able to track down the people to whom reparations are owned, owed in a, in a, in a patrilineal or matrilineal kind of way, exquisitely difficult. I mean, maybe impossible. However, when I think of reparations, um, there are, um, oh, and by the way, and then tracking that, we look at the case of university, um, Georgetown University, who did have the records to, when they discovered the 270 odd slaves that were sold to keep the university afloat, sold by the Jesuit brothers. And they have been tracking these people down as best they can and trying to find a way to offer reparations. So that's one example where it's happening at, at a, one of the nation, our nation's great universities. But when you think at a national level, reparations to me is not about delivering a, a, a check to a particular family. Um, even if we could afford it, I, there's just so many different challenges that are related to it. However, I think reparations in the form of proper public school education, uh, a, a, an actual investment in what we call affirmative action, simply you know, equality of opportunity, uh, job training, um, uh, robust means of um, resolving injury if you have been uh, maligned in your terms of professional advancement because of race. So I'm talking about the robust, the creation of robust systems, uh, starting with education and then going to places like the mortgage industry and banking and, and all these other things. Then you actually will start talking about substantive changes. Uh, the journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote this amazing article, I, I think uh, published about six years ago, maybe seven, called The Case for Reparations in the Atlantic. And it's been republished other places. Um, if you're curious about the long legacies of, of banking industry, mortgage industry, insurance industry, and how this affected the ability of wealth to be transferred across generations in Black America and what reparations might look like, read his article. It is, um, it's a tour de force. Um, but at its core, I believe in massive state investment in public education, um, a massive investment, uh, or not investment, uh, a, a revision of the banking industry so that people have a chance to generate generational uh, education and wealth. Then you're gonna see changes in society. Um, I would note that uh, for anyone who's listening who's interested in reading that particular article, the Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, The Case for Reparations, uh, it's been republished on the Atlantic's uh, website and has been the number one read and downloaded article over the past uh, week or so. Um, so one or two more questions for you, and I, I'm sorry we don't have another two hours because this is a great conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but on the role that education plays. You were just talking about investments in education. Uh, let me throw kind of one macro and one uh, micro personal question your way. Uh, so on the macro level, uh, Hank Ebert asked, uh, what meaningful steps can educational institutions and civic organizations take to address racism and economic inequality? And then on a very different level, uh, Rebecca Chen uh, asked, what are the key messages we should all take as we think about educating our children? 
Uh, would love to get your thoughts on that. Um, you're going to remind me of the first question because the second one I, I started thinking of an answer right away. Um, well, uh, thank you. The um, oh my gosh, and I just lost that question. Rebecca Chen, I remember your name, but what was the question again? I tell me the question. Sure. The question was what can um, what are the key messages we should take to educate our oh, yes, people? got it. Yeah, the, the key message for me um, is that excellence can be found everywhere, every single place. And so that means that we need to get beyond the mental space that says in the US context that black and brown people can't do something as well as some, I mean, that requires brain power, um, do something as well as the next person. That means that um, we need to be telling our children, no matter what they look like, that everybody can make a difference, that everybody provided the right kind of circumstance, the right kind of access to resources, can make a tremendous positive influence on society. And that it's not just the person who looks like this coming from a certain socioeconomic background that is gonna be the change maker. That is a complete false purchase of an ideology. The, um, the ideology that I wanna share is that uh, in a great democracy, you can find excellence everywhere and frankly, to be geopolitical, it's in our national self-interest to find talent everywhere. Um, when you get a diverse group of people together revolving around a question, you'll get a better answer. We actually know this to be true. And so that's the kind of messaging that I, that I want to make sure we get out there. Now, what was the previous question, Charlie? Uh, I'll do you uh, one better. I'm gonna give you the previous question, but then I'm gonna wrap it into uh, another question, okay? Uh, so okay. The, the question, because they're similar. Um, it was, uh, Hank Ebert had asked, what are meaningful steps that educational institutions can take to address racism and economic inequality? Uh, but what I'd really like to do, because I, I, I am conscious of the time that we're drawing down here, is put this question on more of a point for you. Uh, and this comes in from uh, Bob uh, Macon uh, from USA Today, because if you thought uh, journalists weren't listening in, you were wrong. Uh, and Bob asks um, Dr. Holloway, how does it feel to become the first black president of Rutgers University in the midst of civil unrest caused by systemic racism? And will you use your position to help improve race relations in New Jersey and beyond? Okay, so um, uh, really both important questions. I think institutions, particularly public institutions in the United States have a, a, a deep duty, they're duty bound to educate the public. And that means the public looking in all different kinds of, of ways. Now, we need to recognize that in the current state of the educational system in the United States is that our public schools are not funded properly. And so we're uh, in talking K through 12. And so we are handicapping universities, which is the world I know best, in terms of being able to provide the resources to make sure students can thrive when they get there. So, you know, I don't care what your race you are, if you are impoverished and hungry and have intermittent shelter, you are not gonna be able to thrive at a university um, or get to the point of to the university. That's someone else who's grown up in a comfortable environment, even if you may be smarter, you just can't do it. So public institutions really are duty bound to close the gap as much as possible. And frankly, I wish it were happening in K through 12 so that we'd have really super well-prepared students at the, at the higher ed level. Speaking of higher ed specifically, I, 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 one, I would not want to change the color of my skin. I'm who I am. I'm proud of who I am. And I come from a history 
uh, of which I'm also quite proud, and the history of educators. And I, it, it means a lot to me at a very personal level uh, that I, not that I'm the first black person, but that I, I'm, it turns out I am the first black person to run an institution, this institution, Rutgers that is, that is older than the country itself. And to me that, I mean, Rutgers was founded as Queens College in 1766. Now, should it have taken 200 and what is that, 54 years? No, not by a long shot. Um, I don't have some special sauce as an answer here, but the fact is, there's, I also have a, an awesome responsibility. And for me, it's about being um, historically fair. It's about being nuanced and bringing the complexity of many different experiences to bear on this moment in time. Um, whites, blacks, brown, whatever, we are all saints and we're all sinners. We're all fundamentally human beings. And that seems very squishy of an answer, but if we can't get that part down, if we can't get that fundamental aspect down, we're not gonna get there. So that's the kind of stuff I need to be talking about. And also I'll close with something I said from the very beginning. If we aren't prepared to acknowledge all the workers at Rutgers, for instance, if we aren't prepared to acknowledge the people who clean the restrooms and make the food or drive us around, we are perpetuating a problem that's as old as the institution. And that part you need to change. Um, I'd just like to thank you a ton, uh, not only for being such a good friend and mentor over the years, but for sharing your wisdom and for being willing to tackle some of these really challenging and searingly important questions for America, but also for the world. Uh, I'd like to hand it back to our CEO, Simon uh, Jackman, uh, as we wind up the program. But again, thanks, Dr. Holloway. Thank you. And, and thank you, uh, Dr. Holloway, and thanks, Charlie. Um, and, and look, best of luck. <laughs> um, I thought that was a, a terrific last question, but to link the conversation we had about the scholarship that you're so personally invested in over your career with this new mission that lies in front of you, Dr. Holloway, and, and to nail that for us, to land it on the, on the historical significance of, of Rutgers, as you did in, that, in just the last part of your uh, answer there. I thought that was a great case study of what today did, and that is to draw on history to help illuminate the moral uh, significance mm -hmm. of what we're going through at the moment and what the right lessons to draw um, are. Um, that is so central to the mission of the United States Study Center, and I want to thank you for helping us service that mission today. It would be fantastic to see you here in Australia in person one day when, when circumstances permit. I'm not quite sure how many alumni or Rutgers are here in Australia, but I'm sure someone <laughs> will get us that answer at some point soon um, in, in some shape or form. It would be great to do this again, perhaps uh, in person when you're a little into the role. Um, but thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Dr. Holloway. Thank you to the team at the United States Study Center. And thank you to the hundreds and hundreds of people that join today's conversation. Uh, hardly the last the United States Study Center will be having about this topic this year or any other year for that matter. But thank you. Goodbye from Sydney. Uh, we'll see you again on another time. Thank bye -bye. you so much. Bye-bye.